morning. Well, we're going to continue our study in Ecclesiastes. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open them. There should be one at the, on the pew back in front of you. Uh, you're welcome to, um, to use that. Ecclesiastes 9, we're going to read in just a minute, verses 1 through 12. Well, I've titled this sermon, Carpe Diem. Carpe Diem. Perhaps you're familiar with the term. Uh, you've, you've probably heard it translated something like, seize the day. Okay, this, this Latin phrase is, is believed to have originated with a Roman poet named Horace, who used the phrase in a group of poems that he wrote all the way back in 23 B.C., and so while the, the two-word Latin phrase carpe diem is what, is what has come down to us, that phrase is actually part of a longer line, and then that longer line, the, 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 the literal translation of that line means some, says something like pluck the day, treating as little as possible, trusting as little as possible in the next one. And so that, that's the line, pluck the day or pick the day, trusting as little as possible in the next word. And so by using the word carpe, what, what Horace intended to say was something like pluck or pick the day, something that required immediate action. The day is ripe, Horace would say, so, so pick it, so pluck it. It required immediate attention. Thus the summary phrase has come down to us as seize the day, take action now, do it while it's today. Well, there's a, a similar idea that, that's, that's actually become quite quite common in popular culture today. A lot of you young people will, will be familiar with this, but it's an idea that's identified by, by a simple four-letter letter word, YOLO. Y-O-L-O. YOLO, which is an acronym for the phrase, you only live once, which serves as a motto for many of the young people in our world today. And so while a lot of the ideas that are often associated with the call to, to seize the day or, or the cry of YOLO, while a lot of the ideas associated with, with those are not at all Christian, what we're going to see today in Ecclesiastes 9 is that the preacher is actually going to urge us to seize the day. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 9 is going to urge us to take action now while the day is ripe, while we are alive. He's going to remind us that it is in fact true that we only live once. And since that's the case, the preacher is going to urge us to make the most of the life that we have and enjoy the life that we have. Let's read the passage um, together. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 12. So Ecclesiastes 9, beginning in verse 1. The preacher writes, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the, de to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." 
their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 7, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Well, let's pray together. Father, I pray that this morning you would convict us and give us the grace to change. Lord, how often we fail, I fail to heed the commands of your word, and I ask that you would forgive me, forgive us. I thank you for the gift of life that we are all partakers of as we sit here this morning, from the youngest of us to the oldest. And so as a result of hearing from this word today, I pray that we would grow in our pursuit and attainment of joy in the life that you've given us. May we heed the words of the preacher to enjoy our lives. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, our outline, we have three, three sections that we're gonna work through. Um, and so first section, we're gonna see verses one through six. We're gonna see that death is certain. And then next, section two, verses seven through 10, this, this middle section, we're gonna see what a life well-lived looks like. And then finally, the the third section, verses 11 through 12, we're going to see that uncertainty abounds. And so verses 1 through 6, death is certain. Verses 7 through 10, a life well lived. Then verses 11 through 12, uncertainty abounds. But before we look at at section 1, I want to lay out kind of the logic of these 12 verses because they make a a pretty simple and understandable point. So I want to just lay out the flow of it, but I also want to make one clarification And then we'll look at at section one. So first, the logic of these verses. So the preacher uses verses seven through 10, right there in the middle, this this life well lived, what what wisdom looks like. He uses these verses to exhort us to live and enjoy the life that we've been given by God. That's what he's calling us to. That's That's the exhortation. He calls us to enjoy our lives. But those verses seven through 10 are sandwiched between the sections in verses one through six and then 11 through 12. And verses 1 through 6 focus on death, and verses 11 and 12 focus on uncertainty. And so in 1 through 6, we've got him arguing that death is coming to all, that regardless of who you are, where you're from, what you do, how well or how poorly you live, whether you're really nice or whether you're a big jerk, no matter who you are, death is coming to you. That's 1 1 through 6. That's the top part of the sandwich. Everyone without exception is going to die. And then the bottom slice of the sandwich, verses 11 through 12, is an argument that though death is certain, everything else in life seems to be or appears to be uncertain. You don't know your time. It happens to them all. We're taken at a time we don't expect. That's the bottom of the sandwich. And right in the middle 
right? It becomes obvious that the preacher wants the reality of unescapable death and the apparent uncertainty of life to shape how we live in the middle, verses 7 through 10. He wants us to know, to acknowledge, to think about our death and our inability to control our lives in order that our living in the present might be different. And so the fact that our death is coming and the fact that we can't control or determine what's going to happen to us in our future, what we have, what we are called to do is to live with joy here and now. Right? So the logic is pretty simple. Right? The challenge for us is actually living differently in light of the reality that he's laid out before and after. And so that's the logic of the verses. The other thing I just want to clarify at the outset is the way that the preacher in these verses talks about death. So he describes death in the grave as the end of the story here in these verses. Right? He doesn't talk about resurrection. He doesn't talk about heaven. Okay? And I think he does that not because he doesn't believe in the resurrection or heaven. I mean, in fact, as he's writing, the, the, the reality of the resurrection is not as clear as, as post-Jesus. But he doesn't talk about life after death because his point is about life here and now. Life under the sun. That's what he wants to instruct us in. And so when he says, for instance, in verse 10, when he says that when you're in, in Sheol, there'll be no work or thought of knowledge, he's not instructing us about what life after death is like. He's simply saying, hey, when you're dead, when you're in the grave, your living is over. You're not going to be living anymore when you're in the grave. That's his point. And so it is an end point that, that, that serves his purposes here. And the implication is live now because when you're in the grave, you're not going to be able to live. And so you're going to have missed opportunities. So, so take advantage of the life you have now. And so, so just, just be aware, right? He, he's not instructing us on life after death. He's instructing us on life before death. So let's begin there by looking at section 1, verses 1 through 6. Let's look there at verse 1. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. So this idea of safety, right? So there's two types of people, the righteous and the wise, and they and their deeds are in the hand of God, the, the preacher says. No issues there, right? We would all say yes, that, that would have been widely accepted, but verse 1 continues, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Now that comes across somewhat confusing in the ESV, but, but what the preacher's doing is showing that even though the deeds of the righteous and the wise are in God's hand, no one knows what their lives will look like. Whether or not good or evil awaits them, no one knows. And so you're in the hand of God, the wise and the righteous, but what awaits you, no one knows, whether love or hate, good or evil. In other words, being in God's hand doesn't guarantee what lies ahead. We looked at this several weeks ago. There's not a, if I do this, I'm going to be blessed. If I do this, I'm going to be cursed. It's, I'm going to, I'm going to experience blessing or curses. It, it's, it's not up to me to determine. And so there's an uncertainty here that the preacher is, is, is leading with. But, but what is guaranteed, notice in verse 2, it is the same for all since the same event happens. And listen to this whole list. He goes down. Same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good, to the evil, to the clean, to the unclean, to him who sacrifices, him who doesn't sacrifice. The, the, the good one is, so is the sinner. He who makes an oath is the same as he who shuns an oath, who doesn't make an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to them all. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't clarify it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out later, but death is the event he's talking about. Death comes to all, he says, preacher realizes that while, while some things are uncertain, 
Coming death is certain, and there is no escape from it. And the preacher goes to great lengths to make this point. It doesn't matter what type of person you are. Every category of person, every person is on a road that will dead end in a cemetery. Hear that this morning. Now, you are alive this morning. Some of you probably feel more vibrant than others. Some of you look tired. Well, the day is coming when every one of you, no matter how you feel now, you're going to be dead in a cemetery, in an urn, in a vault, somewhere without life anymore. And the preacher says that the fact that everyone dies is an evil. Now, I think part of what he sees is the, 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 the righteous are dying just like the unrighteous. I think that that's part of what is evil about it that he's hitting on is that the, the good experience is just like the bad. But I think a, a, another point that he would agree to be true is that the fact that people die is evil. It's an evil thing that death even exists. It's an evil thing that death has taken many of your loved ones away. It's an evil thing that one day death will, in fact, take every single one of us. And so death is evil. It's an evil thing, the preacher says. And not only that, but verse 3 continues, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, with madness, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. And so not only is the fact that everyone dies evil, it's also a fact that human hearts are filled with evil and madness while they live. And so the fact that everyone dies, along with the fact that evil runs rampant in this fallen world, seems to imply that meaning and joy in life might be hard to come by, right? Death is coming, and evil is running rampant. And so why even live, right? That's the tension that's building, which is why as he transitions verse 4, he begins turning slowly towards a benefit of living. Look there at verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. He who is alive, the preacher says, he who is joined with the living has hope. And so by virtue of the fact that you are living here today means that you have hope. Life is better than death. The fact that you're, the simple fact that you're alive means that you have hope. Look how he continues in verse 5. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy has already perished, and forever they have no more. They have no more share in all that's done under the sun. So once you die, the preacher saying, you don't know anything, and your chance at living is gone. But as long as you're alive, you know something. Yeah, you know you're going to die, but at least you know that. And you have a chance at something, he's going to argue. As long as you're alive, you know you're going to die and you have a chance to live. Now think about what he isn't saying about hope in living. So he, he doesn't say, he's not saying that you have hope because you know what lies ahead. He isn't saying that you have hope because you won't die. And he's made that very clear. You don't know what lies ahead and you are going to die. So your hope in living isn't in either one of those things. He's saying that you have hope because you are alive. The hope isn't what your life might result in. Hope is is in the simple fact that you are alive. And life, regardless of who possesses it, is always better than the alternative. And so hope is found in the simple fact that you are alive. So so your hope, if your hope is based on what I can be or what I'm going to do or what my my kids are going to do, what my family's going to do, that is not a grounds that that the preacher calls you to put your hope in. He says, take hope in the fact that you are alive. 
Yeah, your life's uncertain. Yeah, you're going to die. But now you are alive. And living is better than the alternative. And so as we transition out of verses 1 and 6, as he's going to transition to these, 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 call, these calls to wise living, he's made it clear that death is certain, but he's also started transitioning toward the benefit or the good of being alive, which he's going to further emphasize in verses 7 through 10. But before we transition to those verses, that second section, I just want to highlight briefly a point of application here, which is simply to, to highlight and just hit pause regarding the evil of death. And we just need to stop and realize that death is not natural. It's not natural. Now, now it's natural in that we're all going to face it. We're all going to die. So it's natural in that sense. But it's not natural in the sense that it was not part of the plan. It's not right. It is evil. We need to make sure we understand that death is not natural. Death was not part of the original plan for life on this planet. Death is the result of the fall. That's, that's Genesis 3. Death was not part of Genesis 1 and 2. The created order is in chapter 3 where sin enters that the curse comes. And death is an effect of the curse. The curse that is, that is passed on to our first parents because of their sin, Adam and Eve. They're guilty. And so they're cursed and we with them are guilty. And this world, this earth with them is cursed. And so it's not natural. Instead, it's unnatural. In fact, Paul would say it's our enemy. And it's going to conquer every single one of us one day, at least temporarily. You're going to be conquered, though maybe it's going to be temporary. You're still going to be conquered by death. And it's evil and unnatural. And even though that's the case, the good news is that death does not have the last word. Death does not have the last word. This isn't part of the preacher's curriculum here in Ecclesiastes, but, but I have to say this. The good news is that Christ came to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And since the curse is found over every square inch of this earth and over every square centimeter of your heart, so too do the blessings that come through Christ cover every square inch of this earth and every square centimeter of your heart. The gospel of Christ, his death and his resurrection, is the answer to sin and death. The final solution to our greatest problem, the gospel is good news to those who will be conquered by death because the gospel proclaims death, victory is gone. Christ has been raised and defeated death. And so all of those who are in Christ, who have put their faith in Jesus, who are united in him, share in his death, but more than that, share in his resurrection and life that will exist and go extend for eternity. And so while death is certain and is coming to every single one of us, there is hope beyond the grave for you this morning. That hope is found in Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, you can be united to him. By faith, we believers are united to Christ. And by our union with him, we share in his death and his resurrection, which means that in Christ, through faith in him, we can know a certain hope that extends beyond the grave. We can know a certain hope that leads to eternal life. And so while death is not natural, while death is evil, the good news is that Christ came to deliver us from the curse of sin and death. And so if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, maybe you grew up in church and you know about Jesus, if you're not united to Jesus by faith, if you haven't 
turned from your sin, repented of your sin, and put your faith in Jesus, you're not united to him. And you only share in his resurrection. You only share in hope beyond the grave if you're in union with Christ. In him there is hope. But without faith, you're not in him. And so if your faith isn't in Jesus this morning, I would call you to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus because you will die one day. You will. In 100 years, this room hopefully will be repopulated by, by other believers. Hopefully there's still people worshiping the Lord, but it won't be us in 100 years. We're all gonna die, but there's hope in Christ. And so I would call you to faith and repentance this morning. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, you have hope, and that hope is found in Christ. Well, well, let's look, move on to the second section, verses 7 through 10, as the preacher has transitioned now into describing a life that's well lived. So notice verse 7. I love verse 7. The ESV starts with, with the imperative, go. Go, he says. In light of all that I've said, go. This is, this is his call to seize the day, if you will. Go, he says, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. And so remember the point of verses four through six, that being alive means you have hope, even though your death is certain. Until you die, the preacher said, you have hope and you have reason to live. Which is why in verse seven, he says, because you have reason to live, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. He doesn't mean grape juice, right? Eat your bread and drink your wine, he says. Now, notice how he views this interaction between the, the, this person and with bread and wine. He doesn't say, just eat your bread for sustenance. Just, just make sure you have enough to get you through the day. He says, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine. He doesn't say to drown your sorrows or to forget about your problems. That's not why he says drink your wine. He says, drink your wine with a merry heart. And so the drinking of wine is evidence of a merry heart. You don't drink wine in order to get a merry heart, right? That's backwards, Joy, the preacher says, ought to be sought where it can be found. And while we are living, the preacher says, find joy in eating and drinking. Find joy in the little things. Don't seek joy in making a name for yourself. Don't seek joy in figuring out why things happen the way they do and what's going to happen next. Don't seek joy in, in trying to avoid death. Instead, find joy in eating bread and drinking wine, the preacher says. Now, on a side note, bread and wine here are often associated with, with feasting and joy. It makes his point. Right? He says, celebrate, enjoy life. But also, I think here, it foreshadows, not coincidentally, I would say, the great wedding feast that will accompany the eternal joy of God's people. Bread and wine, right? New Covenant, we, we, New Covenant believers, we, we should think, oh, bread and wine. We, of all people, ought to eat bread with joy and drink wine with merry hearts because the death of Christ himself is symbolized by what elements? Bread and wine. And so for all of eternity, the great wedding feast, the banquet of Christ and his bride is going to be marked by celebration and joy and merry hearts. And so if you're not joy-filled and merry-hearted now, you're not going to like heaven Right? So he calls us here, even in Ecclesiastes, long before Jesus would come and institute the Lord's Supper, he says, enjoy your life. But notice why the preacher says to go eat with joy and drink with a merry heart. Why does he say in verse 7? He says, do it because God has already approved what you do. What is, that? is that a license to do whatever you want? 
And as a parent, if I tell a kid that, they're going to say, oh, I can do whatever I want. Right? That, that's not what he's saying here. What the preacher is saying is that as we eat and drink and do a whole host of other things, right, as we do these things and find joy in them, as we enjoy them, we can rest assured that God approves of what we're doing because that is the very reason we've been giving those, given those things by God in the first place. And so when we enjoy life and all that it entails as a gift from God, we are fulfilling its purpose and our purpose, and God finds joy in our pleasure. We can rest assured because God has given us life to enjoy as a gift. Remember, that's the theme of Ecclesiastes. Life is gift. It's for you to enjoy. And when you're enjoying life and all that it entails, you are living the life as he intended it. There's a, there's a well-known Olympic runner named Eric Little who's often quoted as saying, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Right? That's an illustration of Ecclesiastes 9-7. I feel pleasure when I run. Now, some of you are thinking, I could never feel pleasure when I run. But that was his source of joy. I feel pleasure because he knew that God had given him a gift and ability to run, and he enjoyed running and knew that God enjoyed his enjoying of running. Life is not about the meaning that you can create for your own life or the meaning that you can find in the universe by all your work and ambitions. You don't find meaning in life simply by finding a partner or having kids. You find meaning when you realize that God has given you life in his world and any one of the things can be enjoyed as his gift. Life is gift, not gain. Gift, not gain. Well, he continues there in verse 8. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Kids, you hear that? Let your garments be always white. He's not, he's not calling you to always do your laundry, not play in the mud and get dirty. That's not what he's saying. This is in contrast here to the, to the person who's always in sackcloth and ashes, which would have been representative of the person who's, who's always in mourning right, and weeping. Right? There, there's symbols of weeping. And it's sackcloth and ashes. And he says, don't be that person. Living in God's world leads one to be bright and merry, joyful and contented. So let your garments always be white. And let not oil be lacking on your head. So it is the image. He's a joyful living is what he's explaining there in verse 8. Notice verse 9. Not only how we eat and drink, not only in how we conduct ourselves, but our relationship should also be affected here. Verse 9, he says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And this is a good word for us husbands. Notice the exhortation. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Not, hear me, not tolerate life with the wife whom you love. Enjoy life with the wife you love. Not, now listen to this one, not Enjoy life with the one who isn't your wife. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. That's the call, husband. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. How long? For as long as all the days of your vain life that God has given you. If God has given you life and you're alive and you have a wife, enjoy the wife that God has given you. Enjoy life with your wife. And so men, ask yourselves, do you have aspirations in the workplace? Do you have aspirations in, in your neighborhood, in your community? Do you have aspirations here at church? 
Those aren't wrong, but above and beyond all of those aspirations, you ought to aspire to enjoy life with your wife. One author convictionally comments, if you are too busy to enjoy the life that you have together, talking about with your wife, then you are too busy. End of story. If you do not enjoy each other, then it is likely that you are simply taking what you can get from each other to pursue other goals and ambitions that are never going to give you all they promise. You may use each other to gain something that will turn out not to be gain and lose each other in the process. If you're too busy to enjoy the life that you have with your wife, then you're too busy. Some of us husbands, myself included, we need to hear that this morning. And wives, though you aren't explicitly mentioned here, the same goes for you. You're not off the hook here. Enjoy life with the husband that you love. When the preacher rounds out this exhortation here in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to where you're going. And so recognizing that an enjoyment is our only real gain from life under the sun, right? That's, that's, that's our only real gain or benefit Understanding that the day is coming when we won't be able to enjoy this life, the preacher says, hey, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do it. YOLO. Seize the day. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Because you've been given it to do here and now, and this is the only time that you can do it. I mean, it's similar to in all that you do, whether in word or deed, do it to the glory of God in in Colossians 3. That's what he's calling you to. Finally, we we move to the last section. The uncertainty abounds there in verses 11 and 12. So having given exhortations to what life under the sun ought to look like, the preacher closes out these verses with a reminder that we're not ultimately in control. In fact, he's going to argue we can't control events of our life. So there, verse 11, Again, I saw under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. And so do you see what he's saying as he goes through that, that, that whole list? He's saying that there are no guarantees. Uncertainty abounds. I mean, the sports world is a great place for examples of this. I mean, over just, I think, just the past two weeks, College basketball season has started over the past two weeks. Two separate teams that were ranked number one in the nation. That means they're, they're the best. They're supposed to be. Two separate teams lost to, to relatively unknown teams. So the number one team, the stronger team, the better team should have won, but they lost twice. Duke and Kentucky, both of them lost to Evansville and Stephen F. Austin. Look who they, the, the, the weak won. Uncertainty abounds. One pastor summarized verse 11 this way. And I love this, this language. He says, dim-witted folks whose minds resemble 25-watt bulbs are as likely to succeed as bright intellectuals who shine like 300-watt floodlights. Swift runners may well trip and lose a race to a slower contender. A well-trained and highly equipped army may lose the battle to an inferior opponent just because a thunderstorm made their tanks get stuck in the mud. There are lots of wealthy people who never bothered with college, even as there are people with two PhDs who cannot find a job. Again, uncertainty abounds. There are no guarantees. As the preacher observes life under the sun, he sees that, that, that this is the reality. This 
we cannot control or manipulate our lives ensuring that X happens or that it turns out this way. Time and chance, he says, happens to them all. Things could be going a way we, a way we expect, right? Things could, your life could be going the way you thought, of it, thought it was going, and sometimes it happens. But all of a sudden, a situation could arrive, arise, circumstances could change, an unforeseen event could occur, and all of a sudden, it's not what you expected, And that's life under the sun. There are no guarantees. Uncertainty abounds. And this uncertainty, according to verse 12, extends even to the day of your death. Verse 12, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, or like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I mean, uncertainty reaches even to the day of your death. The day is certain, but when it's going to come, that, that's uncertain. You may think to yourself, I know I'm going to die, yeah, but I've got time before that comes. I've got 30 years. Maybe some of you say, I've got at least five years. Some of you say, maybe I've got 50 years. To you, the preacher says, remember the fish and the birds. They're taken, they're caught at a time when they don't see it coming. Remember them. They're surprised. It comes upon them suddenly. And just like the birds and the fish, just like they don't know their time, the preacher says, neither do you. There are no guarantees. We could all be gone tomorrow. We don't know. But what we do know is we're alive now. Uncertainty abounds. There are no guarantees. This leads right into our our final three points of application as we close. First point of application, we have limited time. Your time is limited. Your death is steadily approaching. So you're closer to your death today than you were yesterday when when you woke up. So am I. Every day brings us closer to our last. Man does not know his time. So you don't know the day or time. You do know that it's approaching. You do know that your time is limited, which means that your time to live is now. Your time to act is now. Your time to enjoy life is now. I mean, I thought about all all the marketing and energy that, that's put into Black Friday shopping, and then Small Business Saturday, and then Cyber Monday, and Giving Tuesday, all these things. But, but all this energy is put into this Black Friday, one day a year, right? So you want something in August. Well, well I can wait until Black Friday. I'll get it on sale, right? I can wait. And so all of this energy is put at midnight, right, on all the websites. They have these tickers. You got three hours left, two hours left. You don't want to miss this deal, right? It's ending at midnight. Act now. And in a sense, these verses are telling us the same thing. Right? Your life, the, the, the window is closing. Enjoy your life now while you still have it because the day is coming when you will not be able to enjoy your life. Your time is limited. Second point of application, limited control. Our control of our lives and what will be is limited. You can't ensure what will come. You can't guarantee what's going to happen. This goes for you, it goes for your kids, it goes for your grandkids, it goes for your great-grandkids. You don't know what's going to happen. Time and chance happen to us all. Life under the sun is filled with unexpected and foreseen, and this prevents us from having complete control. And that's what we all tend to pine for. I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know that my kids are going to be safe. I want to know that I have enough money saved so that they're not left with a burden. Right? We, we want control. We want to know what's going to happen. But that control at the end of the day is only found with God. 
and our limited control over our own life and what happens to us is a reminder that we are not God. One commentator goes even so far as to say that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in order to smash into tiny pieces our idea that we can even be like God. We are not God. However, we have received from God the life we have. And our lives, the one that we have today, here and now, has come to us from the hand of God as a gift to be enjoyed. You have it now, though only for a short while. One day it will no longer be yours. You have, it will be over. But you have it now. And you have it now as a gift to be enjoyed. Which is our last point of application. Though time is limited, though control is limited, the prospect of joy is limitless. And so limitless joy is the final application point. Life is a gift. Remember, this is a theme of Ecclesiastes. You have been given life as a gift to be enjoyed. It's for your enjoyment. That's why you're alive, to enjoy your life. And to enjoy it the way that we're called to, it requires us to recognize that it's a gift from the hand of God. I mean, think about parents giving gifts to their kids, right? Our desires, as we're planning for Christmas presents, our desires for our kids or our grandkids to enjoy the gifts we give them. Like, what can we give them that they're going to just be so excited about? We don't care they're not going to play with it in, in, in two days. We just want them to, to be excited and enjoy receiving the gift. We want them to squeal with joy, to jump up and down, to, to come give us big hugs. We want them to enjoy the gift. Similarly, life has been given to you for your enjoyment from God as a gift. And God takes pleasure in our enjoyment of his gifts. And the thing is, with life... The sources of enjoyment are endless, are limitless. Maybe running's not your source of joy, but there's something in this world that you can find joy. Think about nature. Think about leaves changing color. I mean, this is, it's beautiful. Right? It's a source of joy, even, even if you're raking and bagging them in the front yard, in the side yard, in the backyard. Right? It's still joy. God gave us leaves that in a couple months, they're going to be ugly and brown and dead, but now they're beautiful. Think about food. I mean, there's a sweet potato casserole that has brown sugar and pecans in this hardened top. I mean, I, it tastes so good. I, mean, I just want to scrape off the top and leave the sweet potatoes. I mean, it's so good. We didn't have to have food that tasted that good. There's joy in the life that we have. Relationships. Talk about spouses, a wife of one decade or, or six decades. Relationships with children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. If you're here and you have great-great-grandchildren, what joy can come from those relationships? Joy in this world, though it's fallen, and though it's oftentimes confusing, joy in this world is still limitless. And so here, this last quote from a commentary explaining kind of this, this limitless, these limitless possibilities. He offers this expanded list of what enjoyment might look like. He says, quote, ride a bike. See the Grand Canyon, go to the theater, learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a movie, read a book, laugh with some friends until you cry, play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to Mozart, call your parents, call your kids, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, Learn a new language, plant a church, start a business, talk about Jesus, travel somewhere you've never been, adopt a child, give away your fortune and then some, 
Shape someone else's life by laying down your own. End quote. What is your source of joy? Right? You have been given this life to enjoy it now. And the potential for joy in this world is limitless. And the call to you, the call to me from these verses is to enjoy our lives now. Whatever it is, go, enjoy your life, seize the day. Let's pray as we close.